You're tuned into Exposure, Michigan State student-run news program here live on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Rezel. It may be cool here in East Lansing, but we've got some hot topics to share with you tonight. We'll first revisit an interview that we did with a couple members of the Hammocking Club that we're reintroducing now. The weather is warm. And we've got Fisheries and Wildlife Club. Waldemar Ortiz, the VP, will be coming in to discuss the recent Red Cedar cleanup. From there, we'll go to an indie film uh, done by students here, Kickstarter, that recently passed with their film uh, Reservations. And from there, we'll go to our live interview with two student filmmakers here with Unchecking the Box and Gay from Gaylord. And we'll close off the show tonight uh, as we talk with the founder and the organizer of the local Dylan Birthday Bash. But first, here's your weekly Impact Update. Now it's time for an update from Impact News. Exposure will continue in just a minute, but first, here's your weekly Impact Update. Just after midnight on April 18, police were called to the 3400 block of Waverly Place after several shots were fired. The call turned into the first homicide investigation of the year in Lansing. Upon arrival at the scene, 25-year-old Lansing man was found shot and unresponsive. Within hours of the shooting, thanks to the quick work of investigators, 22-year-old suspect was taken into custody. As of Saturday night, the suspect is now behind bars in the Lansing Detention Facility facing murder charges. Quoted from Channel 6 News, with your local news, I'm Brittany Flowers. Now we go to Impact reporter Michaela Harris with an upcoming presentation by a Jewish author here at MSU. The MSU Jewish Studies Department will sponsor a presentation from the author of Living Beyond Terrorism, Israeli Stories of Hope and Healing, Ziva Kvitzer, the author and an international board member of the Israel Center for the Treatment of Psychotrauma, will share compelling stories as told by ordinary people who become innocent victims of terrorist attacks in Israel between 2000 and 2006. The presentation will take place at 10 a.m. on Friday, April 24th in Wells Hall. With your entertainment news, I'm Michaela Harris. Up next, Kim Alchatel gives us an update on the recent California drought. California faces its fourth year of harsh droughts. In order to compensate for the dry weather, the New York Times reports on community leaders instituting 25% use water cuts statewide. Regulations go into place before the summer heat hits and will be mostly targeting urban outdoor water users. The regulations will be set in a tiered system based on water availability in different areas of the state. In an attempt to make sure people comply with the orders, fines of up to $10,000 per day are being set in place. Here in the Great Lakes State, we may not have to worry about water usage fines, but with your water awareness, I'm Kim Elshatel. Last Saturday, Africa experienced one of the largest disasters in migrant history. Audrey Matus reports. Italian Coast Guards began conducting a major rescue mission in the Mediterranean to recover 700 victims of a capsized fishing boat fleeing Libya. So far, 28 survivors and 20 bodies have been retrieved from the sea. According to rescued migrants, that leaves nearly 700 Libyans unaccounted for, which would make this the worst disaster to happen involving migrants being smuggled to Europe. About 120 miles south of the Italian island of Lampedusa, the fishing boat capsized amidst the hysteria to get the attention of a nearby merchant ship that approached. If confirmed, there have been 1,500 migrants' lives lost en route to Europe, a record-breaking figure. This incident exposes the EU's decision last October to not replace Mare Nostrum, an Italian-run operation that saved about 100,000 lives last year, due to the concern that it would encourage smugglers to make more trips to Europe. Pope Francis, a proponent for Europe improving its rescue of immigrants, commented on the tragedy during Mass last Sunday. 
They are men and women like us, our brothers seeking a better life, starving, persecuted, wounded, exploited, victims of war. For Impact News, I'm Audrey Matus. This has been your weekly Impact Update. I've been your anchor, Brittany Flowers. Now, back to Exposure. You can follow us on Twitter at Impact underscore Exposure to keep up to date with all the features and news stories we put out every week. We'll first go to our story with the Hammocking Club. We'll be sitting down with Matt and Marissa, a story that we originally aired back uh, in January or so. Now that the warm weather is returning and the hammockers are coming out on campus, we decided it was time to revisit the topic. You're tuned into Exposure, and this is Daniel Rezel with representatives from the Hammocking Club of MSU. How are you doing today? Uh, we're good. Could you introduce yourselves and your positions at the MSU Hammocking Club? I am Marissa Truppiano, and I'm the vice president. And I'm Matt Shalino, and I'm the president. Could you give me an overview of how the Hammocking Club got started? Um, so our two founding members, Justin and Nate, were hammocking in their favorite spot on campus one day when a... Um, representative from landscaping had come by and said you need to take these down it's against campus policy to hammock on campus because it damages the trees so they kind of created this club to bring people together and fight as a team to kind of make it allowed on campus so we can't get in trouble or get fined or anything like that so the original founders essentially acted as activists for hammocking on campus is that kind of the spirit of creating the club yeah definitely and uh, have you looked into the MSU policy at all, if there really was any infringement? Um, I don't know if we actually have looked at the policy, but I know when Justin and Nate and everyone were forming the club, they looked at it. It did. There was something along the lines, like very blurry-wise, that we couldn't technically hammock on campus because you know, Michigan State's like in very big into like forestry and stuff that mm. is damaging the trees when people aren't using the hammocks the right way or slacklining or... Climbing on trees, I guess, is illegal here. I don't know. You mentioned uh, when I first interviewed you for the, the features, you mentioned that there were some local arborist groups that got involved. Do you ever happen to get in contact with them again, or is it more of a Michigan State violation? I mean, we've been trying to, like, get in contact with people, but no such luck. We've, like, emailed, like, the Department of, like, Horticulture and Forestry, and we've met with some of the, like, an arborist at Iowa Safety function committee thing but we're still working on it i mean basically in the winter is when we're really going to try and get in touch because now like we're not sitting in trees so we might as well try and make it legal here and uh, have you discussed with any professors here any uh arborist related uh majors or any of the plant biology professors about if you actually are doing any harm to the trees here um, we attended um, a function put on by, by the EFFS Club, which is the Ecological Food and Farming Stewardship, and um, they basically brought in Paul Schwartz, which is the head arborist on campus, and kind of gave a tree safety course, so how to preserve the trees on campus and things like that. They didn't really touch on hammocking, and he kind of ran away before we got a chance to talk to him, so we're in the process of like emailing him and trying to talk about more about hammocking rather than like riding a driving a car under a tree or stuff like that so it was pretty cool though if you do get to talk to him talk to him we learned some cool things about the roots and like driving on the grass don't do that now <laughs> we'll yell at you because now we know <laughs> uh what are some of the current efforts that uh you two and the rest of the e-board 
are currently putting in place to, I guess, fight for hammocking on campus? Uh, I mean, like, what we're trying to get in place, we talked about over, like, the beginning of last semester, is talking to the departments and trying to come up with, like, a sort of compromise. So it's not just we want hammocking everywhere, free reign. It's more like let's set up, like, plans and, like, trying to set up uh, what we call hammocking safe zones where we could work with the departments and maybe set up specific areas and you're like if you're in hammocking club you'll have a map and a card so you won't like you can flash and be like i took the safety class and then you'd properly learn and all that so it's all more of the guidelines of safety and um, teaching people how to properly set up a hammock and i think that's where like the liability comes from like the arborists and stuff sure and uh so what is the current uh legal status per se of hammocking on campus if i were to go string up a hammock tomorrow and you know, in the middle of Red Cedar, so what repercussions would I face? I would say if you hang it up by the Red Cedar, you should be fine. If you're on more of a main road, because I personally had an experience, I was out by the Urban Planning Building, and which is right on, um, right by the Com Arts Building, so it's on one of those main roads right by, like, infrastructure planning and all that, and I had somebody come up to me, and they're like, you need to take this down right now, or you're going to get fined, so I think it's a matter of where you set it up it's not technically allowed it's kind of like at your own risk type thing right now but <laughs> yeah we're like kind of extremists you know <laughs> we're not gonna tell you to hammock but if you happen to it's all right with us just <laughs> don't mention our name if somebody <laughs> by. so uh, other than that incident did you guys ever have any other run-ins with uh any msu personnel over hammocking or maybe any any of uh, your members uh, run-ins? I don't know. I mean, some of our members have. We're always, like, on the lookout. It's like when you sit in your hammock, keep one eye open kind of deal. Like, you see the, like, cars drove by, and you're like, oh, my God, put it down. Or sit your head down in the hammock, and hopefully they won't see you. That's when the camo hammocks come in here. <laughs> <laughs> Hide in the bushes! <laughs> um, now, what if you could, I guess, condense... A sort of legal statement that you would you would be proposing as your final ending statement to MSU over the status of hammocking here at MSU. What what would you say to them? A legal statement. That's yeah, kind of kind, kind of, kind of your uh, your uh, your defense <laughs> to hammocking here on campus. I think as long as you're very smart about it and you're not being very like if you're gonna hammock on a tree that's an inch in diameter, obviously that's gonna cause a problem. But if you're smart about it if it doesn't look like the tree is like falling apart on you I think it's a little extreme to be not allowed um I think it's all about common sense and kind of at your own risk at this point but yeah I mean legal statements I'd have to like take my time Matt Marissa version don't be an idiot yeah (laughs) (laughs) use your eyes look at the tree don't be a tree killer so we'll come find you. Yeah, I've seen people hammocking on trees where there's signs like those plaques on it. Like, don't do that. That's just common sense. Now, earlier, um, I heard you guys discussing some emails that you had there on the iPad. Was there anything <clears throat> that you'd like to share about the hammocking club? Um, just in regards to the email, we've been, like, going through them. And when I did email the Department of Horticulture and Forestry, it was just along the same things that we've been talking about, like, Hey, get at us in like a more formal sense, obviously. Mm-hmm. Get at us, you know, we're really like enthusiastic. We want to like try and figure out a way for people to, you know, be active. You know, it's MSU. We're all about the campus. We don't want to ruin it, but we also want to be able to stay and like, you know, like have fun, lay around in some grass or trees. 
leaves, shrubbery. So have you heard back from the horticulture group yet? Not yet. I'm going to keep hassling them. Maybe we'll knock on some doors. <laughs> Did you have any sort of... Communication any, like, between them? Well, any issues with communication? Were they ever rude or impolite to you, or were they friendly with any they were, exchanges that you had with them? They weren't rude, because obviously it's like, they're professors, like, they're going to be nice. But it wasn't a professional standpoint. Kind of off-putting that they didn't, they took so long to, like, get in contact with us. It was a little bit of discouragement on our end, but... They are busy, the professors. They have other lives than dealing with us activists <laughs> on their side. Um, but we are trying to keep in contact as much as possible. And I think one of the great things about Hammocking Club is that like we try and partner with as many groups as possible along the same like interesting guidelines. And our main like focus is that maybe if we have more people to, you know, be in our interests, it'll catch the eye of more of the departments. Where do you see the Hammocking Club a few months from now? Hopefully up and up. <laughs> Hopefully having a greater outreach program, but depends on the people. Sure. Uh, so anything else that you'd like to add about the MSU Hammocking Club or about anything that we've discussed today? Join the club? Yeah, join the club. If you're interested at all, you don't have to have a hammock to join. Um, we do a lot of things that don't involve hammocks as well, so um, we'll have just like times that we just all hang out we'll go we we went and played laser tag and bowling one day so it's really fun it's not just about hammocking we're all about a whole bunch of stuff so well thank you for coming in today matt and marissa well, thank yeah, you for no having problem. us after finishing my interview with the hammocking club i was wondering where the university stood on this issue I came in contact with Paul Swartz, the campus arborist here at MSU, and he forwarded me an email he sent to Justin Seikert, one of the original founders of the Hammocking Club. The email, dating from November 2012, stated the following. I have discussed your request with other university officials, including MSU police, and we are all in agreement. Due to the potential for tree damage from this activity and to comply with the current university ordinance, Chapter 24.01, no person shall break or cut branches or flowers or fruit or otherwise damage or mutilate any tree, shrub, herbaceous plant, or flower upon property governed by the Board of Trustees or remove from the same any identification tag or sign. The tree damage could occur from the mounting straps girdling the limbs or tree and also from branch breakage. Consequently, your club's activity of using the trees and branches for support of the hammocks cannot be permitted. After reading this email, it seemed to me that things weren't looking too hot for the hammocking club. I gave Paul a call earlier today to see if this email has any relevance at all three years on, but uh, Paul still stands firmly by his decision to protect the trees on campus, also noting that the University of Michigan has their own complete ban on using hammocks at all on their campus. However, because of the hammocking club's continued persistence, Paul said he is willing to make compromise with the group in the near future. For Impact News, I'm Daniel Rizal. You can follow us on Twitter and join the conversation at impact underscore exposure. 
Up next, we sit down with the vice president from the Fisheries and Wildlife Club here on campus as we discuss the cleanup of the only thing messier than my dorm room, the red cedar. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89FM. I'm your host, Daniel Rizal, and I'm sitting down today with Waldemar Ortiz from the Fisheries and Wildlife Club. How are you today? Pretty good, pretty good. And uh, so uh, let's start with just a little bit of an introduction about yourself, and from there we'll talk about what you do at the club. Okay. Um, first of all, I'm an out-of-state student. I'm from Puerto Rico. Really? Um, this is my first year. I'm a freshman. Uh-huh. Um, I'm doing a major in fisheries and wildlife with a double concentration in conservation biology and wildlife biology and management. Wow. And uh, what what brought you all the way from Puerto Rico? Did you have some connections here? Is it just the, the lure of just, Michigan State? <laughs> just the facilities, the staff. Um, I've been here before, so I got to know a lot of the people here. Sure. Um, yeah. I was doing research here when I was in high school, um, doing bee research over in the Department of Entomology. Mm-hmm. And during those seven weeks I was here during that summer, um, I got to know a lot of the people here mm-hmm. and faculty from both zoology and fisheries and wildlife and other departments. And I just enjoyed the atmosphere, the people, and then just... Michigan State as a yeah. whole is just great. Yeah. So do you also speak Spanish then as well? Yes, fluent okay. in both English and Spanish. Wow, incredible. So over at the Fisheries and Wildlife Club, so you're the vice president yep, there, correct? So what, what does that consist of? Um, my role as vice president is obviously being the president's backbone. Um, I'm going to be there for him, his support. And also the club has different committees. We have... For example, a habitat committee, a wildlife committee, fisheries, outreach, etc. And my job is also to oversee those committees and help them out, participate in their events, and be there for the club as support. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, how, how large is this club, roughly? Um, roughly, we range from 40 to 60 students. It wow. fluctuates, obviously, with graduation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also depends on the events. There's a lot of events that are open to the public. Mm-hmm. Where, for example, there's red cedar cleanups. We've had 300 people participate, or 400 people. Wow, and uh, yeah, and you know, talking about that cleanup. So the most recent one was just this past weekend, right? Yeah, on this Saturday Sunday. or Sunday. What was attendance for that like? Was that in the that 300 was, range? We had roughly 200 people. Oh wow! Um, on the spring cleanups, we usually don't have that high of an attendance because. Um, obviously there, it's colder, there is mm-hmm. more danger to go in the water. It depends on the ice, if it melted early or late. Mm-hmm. This year we had very good luck and regarding the ice, the ice melted pretty early so we could get in the water mm-hmm. and pick up trash from inside of the water in canoe, scuba and wader teams. Mm-hmm. So that's why there wasn't that much people. We usually, um, in the fall, we usually hit the 300 or 400 mark. Wow. So this is something that you do twice a year then? Twice a year. Okay. And um, now the, the, the scuba divers interest me. Are those students as well, or are you, um, yeah, are you pulling we, them from? We work um, with the MSU um, Scuba Club. Re- I had no idea we had a scuba club. We have a That's scuba club, and we work together. They bring a whole group of people um, to work with inside of the river, helping the other teams. This is a logistically, it's a very logistically heavy event. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to thank here um, our Habitat Committee, Devin Lang. Mm-hmm. which he is in charge of everything that has to do with habitat management in the club. Um, and the Red Cedar cleanup is one of his events. And he has to coordinate with the scuba club, different frats and um, sororities participate too. Um, it's a very open event, so people can just come in, enjoy, and help clean the river and make MSU a better campus. 
Wow. Yeah. So it's incredible that the, you know, the logistics you have going on with all these collaborations, you know, and mm -hmm. so I guess outside of the, the scuba club, you know, are you involving some other groups on campus? Um, I'm uh, as the club or as a as me. <laughs> I guess like as a, as a club as a whole. As a club, yeah. we do a lot of events. Um, we don't coordinate, but we usually coincide with clubs as the herpetology club. Sure. And they go to a lot of events that we go to, especially in outreach. Mm -hmm. Um, we have an outreach committee which is in charge of going to the public and teaching them about Michigan fa flora and fauna or fisheries and wildlife as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, that's in um, our person in charge is Sarah Plantrich. Um, she takes the task of going to elementary school or bringing in people so we can get um, talks or giving some orientation to students mm -hmm. about Michigan flora and fauna and how to get be involved and how to make it um, a better sustainable world. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, so I, you know, back to the the cleanup yeah. that happened this past weekend. Uh, I had, I had noticed on your Facebook page that you posted they found bicycles and <laughs> bike racks, and so yeah, I guess what what kind of stuff did you end up digging up? Um, it all depended on which team you were. Um, uh -huh. For example, I was a canoe leader, so we took the task of cleaning anything that was floating in the river mm -hmm. or anything we can access from the water. Um, the canoe teams generally found softballs, a lot of water bottles, mm -hmm. liquor bottles, um, and giving support to the other teams. While there was people with uh, grappling hooks, um, we set up stations on the bridges, and basically it's just throwing the grappling hook in the water and fishing anything that gets hmm. hooked. And there was lawn mowers. There was a wooden boat, a homemade <laughs> wooden boat um, lying in the bottom of the river. Um, we got even bicycle trek bikes. Mm -hmm. Um, we had frames that were pristine, in pristine conditions, like wow. if they were thrown in the river yesterday. Uh huh. And uh, in in years past, I mean, uh, how long have you been doing the, the cleanup yourself? Um, I, this is my second one since okay. I'm a freshman. I participate participated in last fall semester. Sure. And obviously this one. Right. And uh, so I, I guess in your experience or anyone else at the club, what was I guess one of the more unusual or shocking things that you you found in the river? The wooden boat was a big surprise, <laughs> but um, the biggest surprise we found in the river so far are just the new bicycles. Yeah. Um, it goes from like two different extremes. We found like a bike rack with like a bicycle still attached to it, <laughs> um, police barricades we found, and the wooden boat just the wooden boat was today, this year's highlight, to be honest. Sure. Man, that's that's absolutely incredible. So, um, now moving on from the the cleanup, uh, you've also been working on a campaign recently with the Spartan Bear. Yeah, yes. what, what's the, what's that about? Okay, um, if you ever been to the Natural Resources Building, we have a taxidermied polar bear in mm -hmm. the quote unquote lobby, and that's right in front of the polar bear room, which is the Nat Resources lobby or lounging area, and. It's a very prideful thing from the fisheries and wildlife department. It's like our icon, and we cherish it a lot. Thing is, that polar bear has been standing there from the like 1950s. Wow. Um, it's been there roughly 60 years, and obviously with time, there's a lot of deterioration. There's a lot of damage, aesthetic damage, and we would like to fix a lot of it. So we had a recent campaign with the fisheries and wildlife department 
um, we b- worked together to raise enough money to re-taxidermy the bear, mm. um, to put it in pristine conditions, to bring the bear, give it a tune-up, mm. um, to say it in a way, um, so we can have that icon for a longer time in the department. And it was surprising. The p- the public's reaction was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, we ordered 100 shirts, for example. We had polar bear shirts, uh-huh. and we ordered 100 those shirts were gone in the first day. Wow. Um, That's incredible. The whole department, the faculty, the students, everybody came in to buy, and even alumni. Um, there's some cases where we even have been found with a situation that we have to ship the, sh- the huh. shirts to alumni that can't get it, can't get them personally here. Uh-huh. And same thing happened. We ordered a second time 60 shirts because we didn't want to like overthrow. Right. Again, first day, all of them were gone. Huh. And the third order has just been placed. And out of the 100 shirts we ordered, there's only 20 left. Wow. We've had amazing reception. Um, the public has been coming in and out, taking pictures with the polar bear, supporting, donating. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that are donating. Um, in our, um, We have a donation page, mm-hmm. um, a FundMe um, sure. page. And people have been going crazy helping out. And recently, last week, we met our goal. Wow. We finally met our goal to re-taxidermy the polar bear. Wow, that's that's incredible. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, I, I believe I saw a photo of President Simon. Yep. Even there. Did, did you have a chance to meet her? Or? Um, personally, I wasn't there that day. Uh-huh. Um, I was in class. But the people that were in the station selling the shirts that day sh- saw her walk in, and they had to go for the photo op. Uh-huh. Um, she wanted a <laughs> selfie with a polar bear right. at the Fisheries and Wildlife Club. Uh, well, that, that's really cool of her, you know, to, to make that stop by and mm-hmm. root, root on with you guys. Um, so today is uh, the 21st. Yep. You've got Earth Day coming up tomorrow. Yep. And uh, I guess how's I guess the club celebrating that? Or what's, is there a message you want to maybe spread out to, to Spartans? What, what would you say to them as far as celebrating Earth Day? Um, Earth Day, Fisheries and Wildlife Club celebrated Earth Day this last Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, we had what we called the Earth Day Extravaganza with the Fenner Nature Center, um, basically letting the public in and giving them the opportunity to work on um, FW things. Um, for example, small mammal trapping, bird watching, pond dipping. Um, it's basically a kid event to give them the chance to experience wildlife in a whole different way, mm. not just trampling along a trail, but actually stopping and watching things and watching the bugs, watching the birds, mm. um, embracing nature in a different way and teaching kids to conserve and protect um, the resources we have. And as a fisheries and wildlife club um, member and as a FW um, degree um, I just have to say that conservation and preservation are just basically something we need to incorporate in our daily lives because to be um, green, you have to make it into a lifestyle, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing better than enjoying the small things and just stopping and watching what you have in front of you. So I encourage anybody that's listening to stop smell the flowers, look at what you have, and just think about what would happen if my children did not get the chance to see this. Mm-hmm. Um, giving them the, and working to preserve what we have is very important as a student and as a future um, conservation biologist. So 
just basically just thinking about the future, making mm -hmm. a greener future. And obviously, we have to leave our Spartan footprint. Mm -hmm. We have to be that changing factor and that point of change in the world right now. Mm -hmm. But beautifully said. And uh, so for anyone that's listening out there, um, they're interested in joining the club. And, uh, you know, something I forgot to ask earlier, what what are you seeing, I guess, major-wise, uh, of, you know, the different majors that are involved at the club? Are they mostly FW majors? Are you seeing people from different walks of life that join in? Or? Um, the FW club um, is obviously mostly FW people, mm -hmm. but we have people from every single major on campus. We okay. encourage people, and it's a lot of hands-on activities. So you don't have to be a fisheries and wildlife major. You can be a business major, a social major, mm. um, a psychology major. We invite every single major to our club, and we invite them and greet them with open arms. Um, it's really a different style of club. It's not formal. We are all friends, and we're just basically working together. Mm -hmm. Great. And uh, so for anyone that's listening that's uh, interested in joining uh, where can they find more information or who can they contact? Um, you can find more information in our Facebook page, um, MSU Fisheries and Wildlife Club, or you can go on the msu.edu page and Google, um, search um, MSU Fisheries and Wildlife Club, mm -hmm. and you'll find a link to our websites. We meet every Thursday in the Natural Resources Building at 6.30 p.m., um, in room 225, but we're having our last few meetings, last two meetings now mm -hmm. um, in these upcoming weeks. So we invite you to come and participate with us um, next semester. We're going to be meeting at the same time and probably the same place, but we'll keep you guys posted on the MSU Fisheries and Wildlife Club page on Facebook and on the um, MSU page. Great. Now that was uh, all I had for you today. Is there anything else that you wanted to share before you head out no that'd be it just the normal chant go green go white go green go white well thank you very much for coming in today thank you you can join the conversation by following us on twitter at impact underscore exposure up next we sit down with a couple of students from an indie film reservations uh, that recently got started after their kickstarter pass screening soon all right, so I'm joined with today uh, Tony and McKenna, two producers from an upcoming student film kind of deal, uh, Reservations. Mm -hmm. We're advertising it and marketing it as an independent film because it's really what it is. We just happen to be students okay. making a film. So. That's totally fair. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit about this film? Yeah, the story follows a man named Oliver Jenkins who is a chef and he doesn't get a manager position the same day he finds out, he inherited a hotel from his grandfather. So he goes to it and realizes they don't have any customers, and it's whether or not he wants to give up his past as a chef and help them kind of reboot this hotel. With, yeah, It's a fiction thing then, right? It's a fiction film, yes. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a dramedy. Yeah. It's oh, a, a dramedy. Drama okay. comedy. <laughs> I like that term. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, uh, this is, you, you said earlier it was produced through a uh, kind of a scholarship kind of thing, uh, uh, it's the, the fiction film specialization, so we get funding from the English department and the communication college. Okay. Yeah. Um, and this just got off of a Kickstarter, right? Yes, we successfully funded our Kickstarter. Um, so we had 30 days, and we did it. So what, is, uh, what does that mean for the film? Um, with this money, we're able to pay a graphic designer that we had hired, um, 
pay musicians that came in and wrote music for the film, um, supply DVDs and posters, and help fund our premiere that's happening at Studio C on April 30th. Dope. So what was your guys' uh, involvement? You were producers. Did you invo- Were you involved with writing or just directing or editing? Um, as producers, we kind of oversee the class. So we're in charge of running the class that meets twice a week. Um, and we've, we've been part of every creative process of the film, but we didn't write it or do anything like that. Yeah, we're really just in charge of making sure that things happen. So making sure that the film gets from point A to point B and then from point B to point C and that we're not missing steps because it's really easy when you're focused on something very intricate like writing or directing to oversee something. And that's kind of what we were there to catch. And during production, we kind of act as damage control. So during we've had 10-hour shoot days and anything could go wrong and people come to us and we're the people that they have to turn to to help fix problems. So what's it like uh, being involved in independent film creating? I mean, that's kind of a pretty popular topic right now, independent films. Uh, what's what's that experience like? It's definitely a challenge uh, because you have to, you know, we were in charge of locations. on, And these were, though we were funded, it's very small budgets that you're working with. So you kind of have to be creative through, um, I don't know, finding what we found we shot in some dorms. We shot anywhere that we could be free. So things like that, just finding ways to make the best product with the littlest resources. Yeah, we did a lot of exteriors, either really early or really late when it was cold to get shots where we would be allowed to use you know, an exterior of a building when customers wouldn't be around. Um, and just if you're going into film, you need to be able to, you need to learn how to produce an independent film because that's really where the industry is going right now. So it was just, this past year was just a huge learning curve for everyone. And we, I don't know, we all learned a lot and it was incredibly beneficial. Is there, was there anything that you really had to stretch to get um, besides like money wise since you're so little funding? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I, one of the things I was in charge of first semester was, um, catering, I guess, craft services. Everyone was really um, helpful, so we were able to get food for the cast and crew. So we have an upcoming screening, right? Yes. Yeah, um, our film will be premiering April 30th at Studio C in Okemo. 7 p.m. 7 p.m. <laughs> um, it's open to the public, mm-hmm. and it'll be a lot of fun. There'll be posters, the cast will be there, um, DVDs. There's going to be a Q&A with the crew. Q&A after. with the crew, yeah. A documentary, a behind-the-scenes doc. Sweet. Is this what the whole thing's kind of been building up to? Is this uh, premiere here? Yes. that's. We always knew that we were going to do with the premiere. That's been um, every year the specialization premieres at Studio C. So that was the main goal where we were going. Yeah, and then after the premiere, we'll be sending it to lots of festivals. Um, it'll be showing at Traverse City Film Festival this summer. Um, and hopefully others after we send it out. All right, if uh, people are listening and they want a little bit more information on this, is there maybe a website or a Facebook page they can go to? Yeah, we have a Facebook page. It's just Reservations Film. We also have a Twitter and an Instagram as well, which you can find links to on the Facebook. Also, the Kickstarter page, now that it's been funded, turned into pretty much a website of just information and updates that we've posted. So even if you weren't a donor, you can still go to that and see the process of the, the Kickstarter. Awesome. Um, any last things that you guys wanted to get out while you're here? We worked really hard on this film, and I, we're really excited to show it. It's 
I mean, like we said, we've been working on it since September. So um, we're really happy with the support we've gotten, and we just hope that everyone can check it out. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for coming in, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. You can join the conversation by following us on Twitter at impact underscore exposure. Up next, we've got two students here from some student productions here that we've got going on on campus. Uh, first, we'll start off with Lindsay Benson, uh, who's from Unchecking the Box. And you just want to introduce yourself and what your role is with the film. Yeah, um, I am a co-producer on the film Unchecking the Box. Great. And uh, we've got a little, uh, a little teaser that we'll be playing here over, uh, over in the studio that Quinn's got loaded up. And uh, play that right now. People say that it's no longer kind of the the t the topic of our time, but it, it is 100% because it's the the foundation of everything that we know, and it bleeds into everything that we know. I think race is a concept, but I think it's a concept we need to acknowledge. When you hear me, you don't hear like someone speaking; you hear an accent. I like my box. I wouldn't want to check any other box. My experiences make me who I am. That was a preview right there for Unchecking the Box. And over in the next seat, we've got uh, Chris Ryan from the Gay for or Gay from Gaylord film. And go ahead and introduce yourself and what you do for the film. Hi, I am Chris Ryan, as he said, and I am one of the producers for Gay from Gaylord, and I'm also, I don't want to say the star of the film, but the film is documenting my stand-up comedy journey. Sure, and we've got a little teaser here also for the film. But growing up in Gaylord, you know, there wasn't a lot of diversity. It was kind of difficult for me to, you know, come out or openly admit that I was gay because uh, I actually saw my first black person here tonight, so. <laughs> it's a wonderful place to grow up. But um, it's not as, you know, accepting as some communities. So we're going to head into my old stomping grounds, the place where I tore it up and represented for the gays. It's Gaylord High School, land of my worst years of my life. All right, that was a preview there for Gay from Gaylord. So again, we've got uh, Lindsay Benson. We've got Chris Ryan here tonight. And thank you for coming in. Thank, Thank you. you. I love talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Well, that's perfect. Uh, so, y'all know each other. Yes. And, uh, so how that good happened. friends. Yeah. How, how, how do you guys know each other? Yeah. Um, well, we are in the same class. It's called the TC411. It's a documentary specialization sort of capstone course here at Michigan State. Mm -hmm. And so you know... Uh, Gabriella Saldivia, then, our oh, sure. manager Great. here, yep. of course. She's in Unchecking the Box. Yeah. Right. Uh, so let's uh, let's start with you, Lindsay. Um, yep. So what is, what's the film about? What's Unchecking the Box about? Yep. Um, Unchecking the Box explores the changing ideas of racial identity in America. So that's our tagline. And um, we kind of took a deeper look into when you're checking off, you know, the boxes on the census or the job applications that make you identify your race. Does that limit identities? And kind of what does that do to you? And also tackling the idea, the idea of the demographic change in America and that, you know, in a little bit, like, white is going to be the minority and kind of opening up that conversation for it. Great. And uh, what what was, uh, I guess, kind of the, the process that you, you took in creating that film? Like, what, where did the initial inspiration come from? Um, well, part of the class, we all had to kind of submit ideas. And uh, me and the, you know, co-filmmakers, we kind of wanted to do something about social issues, about identity, and after a really long, you know, we had a few ideas and then we sat down for like four hours and brainstormed and we kind of talked about these boxes and how, you know, there's not really, at least in a documentary format, there's nothing that is out there exploring that idea. So mm -hmm. we thought, why not? Why not us? <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
Uh, so now over here for you, Chris. Um, you give me a look there, but hey, <laughs> have fun with it, you know. Uh, so Chris, so you're in the the gay from Gaylord film, correct? And uh, so yeah, when well, what's that film about, and when did the the process start? Well, I pitched uh, the creation of a doc in regards to the juxtaposition between urban acceptance of LGBTQ culture and the lack of acceptance um, from where I am from, from a conservative small town. So I really wanted to focus on the social issues and the politics. And then I mentioned, well, I happen to have a lot of connections in the gay scene due to the fact that I do stand-up comedy professionally for a lot of gay clubs and gay organizations. So I have a lot of um, connecting of the dots there. And then members of the class said, well, why don't we do about you? And then I said, great, I love attention. And then, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I'm sarcastic, I promise. Um, And then it kind of unraveled into Gay from Gaylord, which is now um, documenting my journey from really shy, small catholic farm town boy that had to go through a lot of bullying and suicide issues to now um a professional stand-up comedian and student here at michigan state and uh kind of the changes that i've had to go through and the problems i've had to face in that process Mm -hmm. and uh we were talking before uh, we went on air that as i grew up in zealand which is over on the, the west coast and east jesus nowhere here in michigan but um it, I feel like you're kind of describing Zealand when you're describing Gaylord. It's just very small and conservative, a lot of issues with diversity. And uh, and something that I wanted to ask you is that uh, in the trailer that you put on your website, you mentioned that comedy is pain and that your your comedy stems from all the experiences that you had living in that city. I, I guess, could you elaborate on that a little? Why, why do you feel that comedy is pain? Were those experiences necessary for you to develop a, a comedy career? I definitely think that all the negative experiences that I went through in my adolescence has contributed to my sense of humor and my comedy. Uh, I think it has given me a a lot of um, things to relate to other individuals that might be going through hard times and then create jokes from there. So when if someone were to see one of my routines, I do talk about bullying and I do talk about some of the issues of lack of acceptance where I came from, but then I turn it into a funny situation because yes, I went through these things, but I went through past tense and now I'm at a happier point. So I think it's best to make light of it now and make it a positive situation to show people that there's light at the end of the tunnel and um, it gets better in quotations. Mm -hmm. Cliche, cliche. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Now, now back to you, Lindsay. Um, So, when you were creating the film for the Unchecking the Box, uh, what, how did you involve students into the film? Yeah, um, so the film, you know, uh, you know, describing the topic, we wanted to stick to college-age students because that's what we were closest to, and that's what um, we felt like, you know, that's the next generation. That's these voices that need to be heard. Um, so we contacted a lot of students around Michigan State and the surrounding, like, Michigan area, um, people of color, people of mixed race, uh, people of, you know, minorities, um, we have someone who is adopted and he's from Korea, adopted into a white family and kind of asking them about their their identity and how they feel when they have to check a box and what that race, how that race plays into their daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, <laughs> um, so I, I participated in the film. I went to the, I guess, the recording session yeah. where we had to fill out the box. And uh, so what, what were some of the more interesting responses that you got from that? 
we I think what was so interesting was they were so different. Like we went in, we had no idea what we were going to get out of asking all these questions. We, you know, you can assume things, but you don't know what people are going to say. And what we got is some people love their box and they, they loved identifying as their race. And that's just exactly who they were. And we found that some people of mixed race had such a struggle because they wanted to be able to put, you know, both both races and both cultures and identities. And, you know, some people that you may look at them like you may look at Alec, one of our characters who is Korean, but he says like he feels white and he knows that when he looks in the mirror, he looks Asian, but he'd rather check the white box because that's how he identifies with. And we also had people that were just, you know, I want to be human. I don't want to be categorized by my race or my box. I just want to I want to be me. So Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, you know, something that we drew from on the film is that there are so many differing opinions. Sure. Um, Now, let's say uh, for for you, Chris, if you fill out a box, what what would you have put in it? Hmm, I I don't know. I haven't thought about that. Um, I think I would put my sexual orientation i probably would be inclined to put gay on there uh if i were to ask to be checked for race i would probably put caucasian um but yeah I, i'm i'm pretty boring i'm bland <laughs> uh now what what's kind of the i guess what what's the public reception been so far for each of your films Really good. Um, for unchecking the box, we've had everyone we've contacted has been really been excited to talk to us about the subject. Um, we also part of our film we went and filmed an Emerald meeting in Brody neighborhood here at Michigan State, which is you know every week they have different activities, kind of looking into um, just different social issues in America. And you know the week we went to go film, they were tackling the idea of identity and how race and culture and nationality and ethnicity all play into that. And, um, you know, it's, it's a room full of, like, 40 people, and everyone was so excited to talk about it. And it, it was a really good feeling after that to know that, like, people did care. And, you know, after, um, after you know, promoting our trailer online and, you know, inviting our friends to, like, our Facebook page and sharing our website, we've gotten, like, really good responses, and people are happy that this conversation is happening. Mm-hmm. And what about for you? I think that our response has been positive thus far, which I'm really excited to see, even from Gaylord, which is kind of... I don't want to say this film is slandering Gaylord by any means because it isn't, but it does depict kind of the negative side of Gaylord where this community kind of fostered a sense of hatred towards myself and my lifestyle. But when this started to gain traction in my hometown, um, I've only received positive responses from people sending messages saying, I wish there was a kid like you there for when my brother when he was going through his issues it took him until the age of 40 to come out i wish there was a voice for his community back then and things like that i've gotten just an outpour of support from former teachers uh, family friends and all that and it's been very surprisingly positive which i'm really excited to see because i'm so passionate about this project Mm -hmm. and uh i you know identity is a i guess a time factor between each of your projects is that something that you saw in some of the other films that were being made in your class, or is that something that you just guys, each of you, just happened to focus on identity for each of your stories? Or, um, well, we the, we're the only two films in our class, um, okay. and it wasn't until I maybe a few weeks ago that we realized that like that was kind of a central theme of both. I know for our film, we started off with one idea, and like even from two weeks ago, our film has been so fluid and very ever changing. Um, we, I, you can probably attest to that seeing from the other side like we've changed so much over the months so yeah i think we realized a few weeks ago that you know these do cover identity Mm -hmm. now we only got about a couple minutes left here unfortunately but uh i guess what's what's your end goal for the film i guess your your hope for 
where you want the film to go. Um, if you want to go ahead first. Yeah. Um, well, we were hoping to use it as an educational tool and screen it at universities, and we're going to post it on our website. And um, we're also hoping to, you know, submit it to local television stations like uh, WKAR and submit it to the Traverse City Film Festival and other film festivals to get more recognition. And then together, we'll both be um, screening at Studio C next week, mm -hmm. which is open to the public. So, yeah. That is on Tuesday, the 28th yes. at Studio C at 7 p.m. is when we are showing that. 7 yes. and 8 p.m. respectively. A double feature. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Great. And uh, just to wrap things up, uh, for people who are interested in finding out more information about each of your projects, uh, social media, websites, where can they go? Yeah, uh, our film, Gay from Gaylord, um, which we also, in addition, hope to send out to film festivals and distribute for educational purposes, will be online at gayfromgaylord.com. So that's really exciting. And under that, on all of our social media, being Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, uh, we're super passionate about this project, and we're just excited that it's coming together. Great. Yeah. And uh, same with Unchecking the Box. You can check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Unchecking the Box. And we also have a pretty cool website up, uncheckingthebox.com. And you can see our trailer and uh, pretty soon our full documentary. Great. Well, this has been uh, Chris Ryan here uh, from Gay from Gaylord. And we have uh, Lindsay Benson <laughs> uh, here from Unchecking the Box. Thank you for the two of you coming in today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at impact underscore exposure. Join in on the conversation or to keep up to date with all the features and interviews that we put out. Up next, we sit down with Ed Gildner, who is organizing the fifth Bob Dylan birthday bash. Believe it or not, we've had uh, four more here. And I, being a big Bob Dylan fan myself, I had to have him in. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Rizal, and I'm here today with Ed Gildner, the organizer of the Bob Dylan Birthday Bash. And how are you today, Ed? Uh, good, thanks. And uh, so this whole Birthday Bash, I, I imagine you must be a fan yep. of Bob Dylan. Yep. How, how long have you been a fan of his? Uh, it's many years, since I was in college, for sure. Uh -huh. Seen him maybe six dozen times. Six dozen times. <laughs> You're kidding. Uh -huh. Oh, my gosh, that's incredible. <laughs> uh, where... Uh, what was the first show that you went to? Uh, uh, shared bill with Santana at Pine Knob. Oh, okay. Wow. And uh, do you have like a favorite venue that you performed at or anything? Or uh, I was talking about St. Andrews one time. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was pretty special because it was so small. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. I've, I've met some people I've seen him like a dozen or two dozen times. <laughs> Six dozen. That's incredible. Um, and, I, and I've got to know too because I'm, I'm a fellow Dylan fan myself. And uh, do you have a favorite album of his or is it uh, a little I'm, torn? I'm I'm a little partial to the new ones, just because I haven't heard them a million times. Right. So. <laughs> and uh, so I imagine this is kind of a, the catalyst behind creating this event. Of course, the Bob Dylan Birthday Bash. So this is the fifth one now? Yep. And so what, what's the event all about? Uh, just a bunch of people come together to do their own interpretations of Dylan tunes. Um, and it ranges from, like, first-timers and amateurs to, like, you know, real professional musicians. Really? Mm -hmm. And uh, so how? So this is the fifth one, so... What have happened in years past that kind of, uh, I guess, captures the essence of what this event is about? Uh, I, th I think, again, it's kind of the unique take on uh, each individual song. It's somebody's own approach to it, um, which I think is kind of in the spirit of how Bob does things. You know, uh -huh. He doesn't do anything the same way twice a whole mm -hmm. lot. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's fun to, uh, like, some people put together, like, a one-time collaboration you know like some people that don't normally work together will put together a set list and play you know half a dozen songs or something mm -hmm. so, do you perform yourself yeah a couple tunes are you a guitar player piano uh, or guitar and amateur yeah yeah <laughs> and uh so have you performed at the the festival mm -hmm. yeah 
Well, I guess what, what are you performing this year then? Uh, this year, some friends and I are doing Joey and Days of 49. Oh, okay. And, um, it's an interesting selection there. Yeah, yeah. I tried to do some unusual ones, ones yeah. that other people aren't doing. Yeah, yeah. Are they personal favorites of yours? Are you just kind of shooting for the, uh, the more rarity is. side? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, aside from all the musical performances, are we, are we seeing. Uh, food there? Or are you seeing like some DJing even, or like what? What, um, what, what kind of goes outside of the performers? No, it's we've got kind of a full bill, so it'll be there won't even be an intermission. It'll be music from start to finish. I think uh, usually there's a birthday cake too. Yeah, sure. Uh huh. And um, so let's say one day uh, you're you're hosting this birthday bash event, maybe even this weekend, and Bob just shows up <laughs> to celebrate his birthday with everyone there. What would be your first reaction? Uh, disbelief. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, as usual, he's on the road, so there's, yeah. there's no chance of it this time, of course. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, anything <laughs> that you just ever, like, feel like asking him, or uh, it's always been a burning question you wanted to know? No, usually, uh, usually he doesn't react real well unless you ask him about his family, or if you know something about a band he likes. Yeah. He'll talk to you sometimes. Oh, okay. Yep. And, uh, I mean, and you've been to six dozen concerts. Did you ever run into him by any chance? Uh, no, but, uh. At one time, you could actually get on stage during the encore while he was still playing. So. You know, I saw a video of that before. Yeah. Someone was, he was performing uh, Absolutely Sweet Marie, and then the, the stage was rushed by yeah. fans going up, and they're, like, talking to him. Incredible. Yeah. And yeah, there, uh, Sorry, go ahead. Uh, there was an MSU show where that happened. Really? Yep. Oh, man. Here, here <laughs> I am sitting. I just became a Bob Dylan fan a couple of years ago, um, unfortunately, so I, I missed out on all these great shows from the years past. I'll be seeing him twice this year, actually. Oh, good. Catch him in Detroit and South Bend, so I'm looking forward to that. Cool. Um, but I guess back to this festival, where where do you see it going in the future? Uh, Anything I, I, like new you'd like to introduce, or you just... Uh... Some years we try to do uh, something different, like we had a sing-along one year and did the Tempest, which is oh, yeah. you know very long and like... Different people sing different verses, so huh. try to change it up or come up with some something fun like that. Yeah. Are you anticipating anyone playing uh, any of the new tracks this year? A uh, Million Miles might be the newest one that anybody signed up for. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, for for our listeners out there who are interested in getting on the bill or just even attending the event, what's, I guess let's kind of go through a rundown of the event details, when, where, um, who they can contact, and sure. everything in between. It's uh, at... From 3 to 7 at the Avenue, uh, right in Lansing. And it's on Facebook at BDBBV, because it's mm-hmm. the fifth the one. The fifth one, yeah. yeah. And find any other information there? Great. And uh, so that's the Saturday, correct? Yep, the Saturday. Saturday, April 24th. And if anyone is interested in joining the bill, uh, should they? is there an email they can it's, contact you at? Uh, Darnot7, D-A-R-N-O-T-T-7, at Hotmail. Great. And... Uh, I mean, I just have a uh, one more question for you today. So, out of uh, back to the concerts, because I'm still blown away <laughs> by the six dozen concerts. This is incredible to me. Um, uh, I guess do you have any memories yourself? It's just that really stuck out. Like, or, I mean, really from any concert, that's just some moment in the concert that really captured you. Did you ever rush to the stage yourself? Uh, yeah, yeah, at the, yeah. At the MSU show, we got on mm-hmm. stage with him. Um, there was a once where we were off to the side and we could see Bob behind the. Speakers like fixing his hair between songs. Huh. It was kind of a funny moment. Um, saw Jack White join him on stage unexpectedly in really? Detroit one time. Yeah, what was that when they performed? Um, the song name's escaping me. It's it was... a ball and biscuit. Yes, yes. Oh wow, that's incredible. I didn't. Sorry, I, I'm just so caught up in this. Six <laughs> dozen shows. This is amazing. I I don't think I've ever. I'm, I've met a lot of you know 
<laughs> Dylan, Dylan heads. Is that even the term? D- Dylanites. So, you know, all these Dylan fans never met anyone. Six session shows. <laughs> yeah, that's that's absolutely incredible to me. Um, but that was all I had for you today. If there's anything else you wanted to add about uh, the event yourself, Bob Dylan, really, uh, really anything? Bob will be in Detroit on May 15th, and all of his dates are at bobdylan.com. Great, and uh, I know I'll be there. Are you gonna be at yeah, that show too? Hey, who knows? Maybe we'll run into each other there. <laughs> well, uh, Ed Gilner, thank you for coming in today. Thanks a lot. All episodes of Exposure can be found online at impact89fm.org. You can also find us on Twitter at impact underscore exposure. Special thanks tonight to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Gabriela Saldivia, and our producer, Quinn Hoffman. You have been listening to Exposure, Michigan State student-run news program here live on Impact 89 FM with your host, Daniel Rizal. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure.